HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca. Ithaca, New York boasts an authentic craft beverage experience, tasty farm-to-table culinary adventures, and scenic outdoor recreation among 150 waterfalls. Plan your trip today with help from visitithaca.com. This is Dana Cowan, host of Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. I've been a part of the HRN community for a couple of years now, and even after all that time, I'm constantly inspired by the incredible voices on our network. Each week, I record my show with a window out onto people eating pizza. Why is that important? Because this is food radio. I am excited to bring the listeners incredible stories from women in hospitality, people who care enormously about food, where it comes from, and the stories behind it. All of us here at HRN make food radio because we love it. This year, HRN is celebrating its 10th anniversary, but we need your support to keep food radio going strong for the next decade. Join the HRN community today by becoming a member. Here's how you do it. You go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate and do that right now. You can even show some love for my show by selecting Speaking Broadly in the designation drop-down menu. Thanks for listening to HRN. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I speak to an extraordinary woman in hospitality about their journey through triumphs and challenges, all the way to the happy, hopefully happy position where they land today. Uh, Today, my guest is Marguerite Mariscal, the 30-year-old CEO of Mamafuku. I'm sure that doesn't need too much of an introduction, but in case, uh, it is a culinary brand that was founded by the iconoclast Dave Chang. Marguerite started at Mamafuku as an intern in 2011 and has quickly risen to the top of the organization. And when I say top, I don't mean like generically the top, like I mean CEO. 
I guess I said that. Dave is a wild visionary uh, behind the growth and the change at Mamafuku and has said that Marguerite has a better sense of the brand than he does, which of course makes me incredibly interested to have her here. Learning Dave speak or understanding what's inside his head um, is an exciting and I imagine really quite challenging uh, prospect. Welcome, Marguerite. Thank you. I'm so happy to have you here. I've known Dave for a really, really long time. So he founded Mamafuku, I guess, in 2004. And I still remember going to, you know, sit on a wood chair and eat ramen with him, like, really intense in the in the back. Um, you didn't, you know, you came along a little bit later, but I have to imagine, are you one of the longest-running Mamafuku uh, in, in the office, yes, but uh, we've had we have a manager at Noodle Bar who's been there for 14 years. Uh, we've had a couple of chefs that have been there for 10 plus, so uh, there's a lot of people in that camp. Okay, so you're not just completely distinguished no. in, in that way. I'm new, you know, compared, compared, to, um, <laughs> compared to some of them. Um, so why do you think that Dave says that you understand the brand better than he does? And uh, what does that how does that make you yeah. feel? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I agree. Um, I think just I understand the end goal that he wants to achieve, even if it's maybe through a different means or uh, interpretation. But I think we both have a common sense as to the kind of company that we want to run and, um, you know, kind of where things are going. Um, but I, I don't know if I can I can say that I know more than Dave. I think that's very Okay, so what's the end goal? Um, I think what's interesting about Momo is that it's never been like, you know, be the biggest or the most profitable or open the most restaurants. Um, I think it's always been kind of trying to do things differently. Uh, And so you could see that even when Dave, instead of opening another noodle bar in 2004, opened Sambar and then opened Co. And it's kind of been that process for a bit. Um, I would say it used to be very organic based on opportunities, based on what Dave was interested at the time. I wouldn't say that's dramatically changed, but there's definitely more intent as to where we want to go geographically, the kind of concepts we think they're missing in the market. Um, but at the end of the day, it has to be something that's super exciting. Um, otherwise, it's not worth doing. Okay, so you're giving me so many openings here. So uh, where are there the holes in the market? Uh, I think, I mean, Peach Mart is something we just opened uh, at Hudson Yards, and that's something that we've been super excited about for many years and kind of finally found a space to do it. So the idea is uh, how do you make a convenience store but more in line with, you know, the uh, Lawson or uh, 7-Elevens in Japan? Um, And describe to people what that is. So that's uh, actual quality food that's produced pretty consistently. There's always like a timestamp of this is when it was produced and this is when it's going to get pulled, um, as well as they're like impeccably clean. It's like the cleanest bathrooms. uh, And it's just kind of a part of, I guess, daily life in a way that, you know, I would say in the U.S., the convenience store is more like a gas station or um, not something that's a place you'd go to eat. Um, So... We've been playing around with that. I mean, Dave always talks about the best ideas are the things that are the lamest. So 7-Eleven being a great example of that. (laughs) Um, But same with, um, we always kind of talk about, uh, you know, Applebee's or these kind of, everyone wants to make a QSR right now. No one wants to make a relatively affordable, large restaurant um, and kind of mining those as possible ideas uh, just because at this point, every chef has a, you know, a quick service version of X and how do you find uh, something that hasn't really been mined yet? So uh, when I went to Peach Mart, which I loved in Hudson Yards, so if anyone's in Hudson Yards, you can go to um, Kauai, 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 yeah. Kauai. Um, which is one of the one of the Momonu restaurants that's 
extraordinary. Next door is Peach Mart. But I got to play a game and I got to win. Yes. Now, I never win games. So the idea that I got free food, I like that. And I got to win. So can you just describe like the uh, what you're doing there? I got to roll some dice. Yes. Uh, they were plastic. <laughs> so I loved it. So there's this thing called Shake-A-Day, which is kind of really informal gambling. <laughs> so the idea being that you can, uh, once you get to the register, uh, if you roll the dice a certain way, uh, you can get, you know, in every day it changes, we have these different tokens. Uh, so whether it's something as simple as a dollar off or some days it's a bigger prize, like, uh, you know, a free kimbap, a free uh, sandwich, but kind of having, uh, I think what we figured out with Bong Bar, which is a concept that we opened at Time Warner Center, um, where we actually started out us trying to really make it technologically sophisticated. You know, like you place your order, you get a text message, you can wander around, get called back. What we ended up doing is actually the opposite, like really analog. Like we found that actually calling people's names and then remembering them worked way better than technology. Uh, and so I think at Peach Mart, we wanted something similar where how do you make like a loyalty or rewards program that's not level up, that's not an app. How do you make something that feels more spontaneous and organic? Um, and given they're both uh, kind of big uh, office environments, we do get a lot of people coming back. So it's fun for first timers, but it's more so I think designed around people that, that come there every day. Okay, as a first timer, I loved it. And I got a free sandwich. Yes. So, <laughs> like I didn't get the most minimal version. I felt like that was a pretty great expression of um, how to get something free. And it also inspired me to spend more money. I'm Ooh, like, there oh, go. well, then I think <laughs> I have to bring a bottle of Somme home with oh, me. There you go. Perfect. Um, which indeed I did. You mentioned technology. I, I, I understand that one of your great geniuses at MoMA was like working through technological issues. Is that a passion of yours or is it also because I, of what people say that you will do anything. <laughs> Marguerite succeeds because she will do, well, legal, yeah. but anything. <laughs> anything yeah. uh, I would say I, I only in the facet as it's like part of like the consumer's experience. Um, when I started, I did uh, social media um, because I was the youngest person and that was kind of like the new scary thing. Uh, and then that moved to digital media, which included our websites, which I have redone twice. Um, and then that transformed into working with um, the tech team on our reservation system, um, which uh, was uh, something that actually was started in 2008 when we opened Co, just because there wasn't anything out there that could do what we wanted, which was uh, book out those 12 seats uh, at 10 a.m. every day for only two weeks in advance. Um, so that was actually something that was built. And then as we grew and added, you know, uh, fried chickens at Noodle Bar or Bosoms at Sambar, the system had to keep growing. And so we revamped that as well. Um, and I think we've gotten to a point in our growth, both um, you, you could see this kind of in every capacity where we're trying to not do as many things ourselves <laughs> in a vacuum, <laughs> uh, you know, and working with partners who, who are kind of best in class in those categories and collaborating with them. Uh, so we're moving as a company to kind of figure out what's the past, best path forward. Um, and it's not always doing something, you know, bootstrapped, uh, which is kind of the old Momo way of everything was, as, you know, what we could afford or what we could do. Um, but yeah, no, I think it's, it's just all part of the, the user experience and, um, you know, thinking about a customer's journey from when they go to our website to when they get the bill and just making sure that each of those points are thought of, um, not just the food, which I think was what Momo used to be known for. So, you took over the social and the website, which, and brand. Uh, 
how did you think about the visuals and expressing tone and daveness through those, you know, words and pictures? Yeah, um, I think, uh, so starting obviously with social media and, and kind of, I think we, uh, you know, I think there's so much what was great about Momo and why I think I was interested in the first place is that I think it's always been a brand since the day it basically opened. Um, and I started in 2011 when uh, the first issue of Lucky Peach had come out. They literally opened in Australia the week that I started. Um, so I was like the only person in the office <laughs> for a while. Uh, and, you know, I think it's kind of whether it's the band post, uh, you know, uh, photo in uh, Noodle Bar or the patron saint of like McEnroe at Psalm Bar um, in the That's playlist. John, John McEnroe yeah. poster of, of him in the bar. And so, yeah, we always had these kind of patron saints in each of the locations. And, um, you know, the playlists, which Dave's, you know, meticulously thought through, um, there was always like a lot of content there, like a more rounded sense, I think, than just the food. Um, and so that was kind of how do you take that and apply that to whether it's uh, so I launched the Instagram. Um, we started doing a Tumblr. It was like right when I think restaurants started to realize they could do their own marketing and PR uh, in a way that was kind of unavailable prior to that. So um, we started hiring uh, design interns to then create the assets that then were used on these different pieces. So it kind of like naturally snowballed. Um, it's like if you build it, you know, or like I think of it better than if you build it, it will come. It's like a goldfish that almost like grows to the size of its fish tank. You know, it's like it's like once you start having these different uh, means of communication, um, you know, you just kind of need to keep feeding it in some way. And so that meant redoing the website. That meant um, hiring these designers. And when I started, there wasn't really, I think, anyone who was focused on design. It was kind of always an afterthought. You know, we always, I would say as a company, uh, it's always like function over form. And so uh, I remember when I, I can't remember if I was still an intern, but uh, I up updated the web, the menus for the websites uh, for all the restaurants. And uh, I remember I was opened up Noodle Bar's menu. And so Momo's font used to always be Century Gothic um, on everything. And I opened up their menu and it was like Myriad Pro, which is the font that if your computer doesn't have the right font, it defaults to. So for like, you know, God knows how long that's just like what was happening. And that's something obviously that like I care infinitely about, but <laughs> no one else does. Not, not everyone is like, oh my God, the font. Yeah. I really identify with that. So I basically just took like, once again, just like snowball, like started just absorbing that stuff uh, into my bucket as well. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was a very like organic process, not, uh, you know, anything deliberate. That notion of a fully formed brand, which certainly we weren't talking about brands in the same way back in 2004. Nobody would have said yeah. that about Dave. Um, <laughs> and certainly not at Sambar where, you know, he had one idea and then he, you know, he's going to do a Korean burrito. And then it's like, oh my God, I built this line wrong and this whole business is wrong and this is wrong. And, like it was, you know, I don't think he was thinking about it that way, but is what you're saying that he sort of he infused every project with so much personality that there were there was dimensionality to everything and therefore it was a brand like is that your definition of brand yeah I guess I think everything was really thoughtful like we always talk about how when Sambar opened you know probably not contributing to uh, its success it only served uh, <laughs> like Dr. Pepper and Diet Dr. Pepper and like OB beer and like Pellegrino and it was like that was a very conscious choice made. Um, so I would say everything was very intentional. Um, 
I agree. I don't think anyone would necessarily look at it and say that if, if it was a brand, it was a very like interesting brand of these different factors. But I, I would say everything was thought through. And, you know, I think also something core to the brand is just the ability to, as you said, like if it doesn't work, like change it. So whenever we do uh, orientation for new employees, we always talk about how like if this restaurant looks the way that it does now in a year, we've all failed because it needs to be a living, breathing thing that reacts to the people that want to come here, uh, you know, the environment. Um, and so, you know, I think that that kind of uh, acceptance of change and that kind of um, uh, willingness also, you know, for example, like and things have completely changed, but, um, you know, at the time having the statement of there are no vegetarian options, all of that stuff, like those are all very conscious choices to kind of define your restaurant. Um, and, you know, and once again, conscious choices to then undo those decisions and evolve and grow as a company. I, I wonder about some of those things because Dave was so definitive. Um, you know, he was so determined to, to have a place that was consistent. Like, and no, if you if you want to have all vegetables, like this isn't your place. But it's the times that have changed, or Dave is mellowed, or I think I think it's a a big combo of things. I think part of it is, uh, you know, it's almost like when like to do what this is my personal opinion, to do what Dave did, you almost had to swing to the other side of the pendulum. Like, to make cocoa, you had to do away with backs on seats, no white tablecloths, no sommelier. It's exactly what it is. There's no substitutions. Because that was the statement, that it was the complete opposite of the norm. And if he just did one of those things, no one would have paid attention. It wouldn't have actually, like, changed, I think, how people view fine dining and uh, and that you can have quality food at what I perceive as a affordable price uh, or value for, for what it's charged. Um, and then I think once you do that, then you can kind of start – you can actually have nuance. And you can start saying, okay, well, what do we do just because – that's how we did it before. What do we do because it matters to us versus this kind of uh, decision you made prior. So when we redid Co and moved it to Extra Place, that was kind of the constant conversation. Like, is having backless stools something we care about? Or is that just was a symptom of we had no money and the, tight, the space was tight? And, and you know, that's what we had at Noodle Bar. Um, so, you know, I think that it's that comboed with I do some of think some of its maturity and just not having to be being right being less important than people enjoying the restaurant and I think that's something that we talk a lot about recently is just making sure you know we now have comment cards at a lot of our restaurants which is like insane for anyone who used to go to uh, uh, I mean no one can imagine how yeah. shocking that is I mean and just knowing the totally. evolution but that's actually that's it's crazy <laughs> and you know and I think we look at all of it as just data points right it's like you're not going to make decisions based purely on Yelp, you're not going to make decisions purely based on a comment card, but, you know, it's kind of silly to not have those data points and compare them with what is the chef thinking, uh, what are we seeing when people are eating the food, um, you know, it's kind of a giant blind spot. So um, that's definitely, I would say, maturity in some ways of being able to take those responses, but also just, you know, I think the climate has changed. And I think in general, there's almost like a rejection of what, what, you know, communal seating and backless stools and being treated in a way that I think, you know, was kind of in vogue for a while. And I think, you know, and it almost, as I said, was a reaction to the previous time. Like you almost had to like ebb and flow in, into this. Um, but I think we're kind of now out of it in a way and people want to choose what they're eating and people want to, uh, you know, not be uncomfortable and, and that's okay too. <laughs> that's okay. Yeah. Amazing. That, that's our job. Yeah. <laughs> and when you talk about these things, a lot of it does originate with 
Dave, like he has such a strong vision, but you do as well. And clearly um, he respects you immensely. I mean, your name has come up in our conversations for so many years, um, which, you know, of course made me curious to, to meet you, but also to understand the role that you feel that you play. Um, you know, is it adding the questions? Is it, um, you know, pushing back? Is it um, forwarding, you know, like moving forward? Like, how do you see your role now as yeah, CEO or over the last few years? Because it's evolved, right? I mean, you were yeah. chief of staff, so... Um, I think it's a combo. I think it's it's having conversations. I think it's... Uh, I, I, and I, this, I don't know if this is just my upbringing or what, but I feel like even when I was in, you know, I don't know, digital media manager, I felt very comfortable saying like, well, why do we do it this way? Like, you know, and I think it's very easy when you work at a big company or what we now is a big company to just kind of do things based on that's how we've always done it. Um, And I think the beauty of Momofuku in general is the ability to kind of question everything. And and just because, you know, we like, I I always use Noodle Bar as a great example at 171, um, you know, Chef Tony, Kim, uh, he basically changed the way that we do the pork buns. Um, and there's nothing sacred. There's no holy cow. There's no thing that is untouchable. Um, Wait, that's amazing. Let's go back. So let's just talk about the history of the pork bun. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> and um, it's it's really I think it's fascinating. It's uh, you know the we always serve this pork bun, which was kind of the the core I would say, and um, you know was something that was you could get at Sambar, you could get at Montpatrick, you could get everywhere. Uh, and and describe it a little bit. because I think people have had bad versions of it because yes. <laughs> it's been replicated so many places. So if you've been, haven't had the, the Momo version, it's been bastardized a little, but do you want to just describe sure. like what that original... Yeah, so was? it was two pieces of pork belly uh, that were stacked in a like uh, uh, Peking duck bun or also a Taiwanese bun uh, and with hoisin sauce and uh, pickles and... Uh, pickled cucumbers and it was always these kind of like uh, it's super fatty super uh, squishy and you know I think you could say that every Momo restaurant um, you know really was heavy on pork belly and at the time that was actually like a contrarian thing and it was cheap which is why we used it and then as uh, pork belly kind of became more in vogue the price has gone up and you know now it's almost a luxury product as opposed to something that intentionally was used because it was cheap Um, and also I would say you know once again changing tastes at least in my personal opinion I think people are less looking for like super fatty heavy than they were before um so and plus the way that it's done uh maybe this is getting too chefy but it's uh there's a lot of waste that comes out of it because you're trimming these things down you you know you don't want any piece to be too fatty or too lean so you're kind of getting this perfect uh area and so uh and noodle bar which does insane volume it's like everything you can do to make it more efficient but while improving quality is a decision to make and never doing anything for the sake of efficiency but if there's ways that we can produce something we think is better so uh tony um started doing this thing where he basically started rolling the pork belly so you got like an even distribution of the fat and the leaner parts uh across it and so then it became just slicing it and then they started searing it on the plantra so it got some crispiness in addition to like the really fattiness which i personally think is better um and it's more efficient and (laughs) it makes a more consistent product um so you know 
things like that, you know, we still have people that take a photo of it and say like, oh, never change, you know, like this is great. And it's like, no, this is like literally like in this evolution and same with the, the broth that we do at Noodle Bar, um, that's gone through all these iterations and how people's tastes have changed in terms of it used to be like super smoky, Benton's, uh, fatty. Now it's a little cleaner and, you know. So let's, let's hold there for a second. So it's the original ramen yes, broth yes. that you're talking about. And um, it was like the, the Benton's is an Alan Benton yes. uh, ham. Is it a ham or is it a pork? The a bacon slab that he bacon produces, but that smoked produces. and super, super uh, flavorful. Um, and so, you know, I think that that, and I think what's great is, you know, you had that transition and then at uh, Time Warner Center, where we just opened, we finally kind of felt comfortable around the idea of, of expanding noodle bars. And uh, But for us to do that, we knew we couldn't copy and paste what we did in these village because it's just so singular to itself. Um, and so we started actually producing at Time Warner Center all of our own uh, dough. So um, in the same way that, as you said, you can go to Portland, Maine or Portland, Oregon and get a pork belly bun that is the same bun essentially, you know, how can you do it differently? How can you actually offer something? So doing it ourselves means we can do stuffed buns, we can do split tops, we can do sliders, we can kind of change the mode in which you're eating these things. Um, so all is to say, you know, I, I think we're constantly trying to improve and get better and, and look at, you know, I, that's something I always said is that if you were to drop the design of Noodle Bar in East Village in Portland, Maine, there's a place that looks exactly like it right now. And it's like, why would anyone think this is new or interesting? And they've already had a pork belly bun at some other place down the street. So you have to look at like the who's around you, what are they doing? Um, and if you want to continue to actually offer something compelling and unique, um, not rest on the idea that we are who we are or someone's heard of our name. Um, so uh, that's been a process um, and we're opening in LA uh, later this year. So like we're finally, I think at a, place where we feel like we have a product that's like a competitive uh uh product regardless of our name you know it could be blah 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 noodle bar and i, I think it's 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 up there so um you have a restaurant in la because you have major domo mm -hmm. but you're saying you're expanding noodle bars yes out of new york city to mm -hmm. have more noodle bars the notion of expansion i'm curious your you know point of view it's the aesthetic the original aesthetic was each place unto itself and very edgy and indie. When you have noodle bars on two coasts and you replicate peach marts and you have CPG, you have consumer packaged goods like selling the SOM sauce, um, what's your point of view on that original identity and what it transforms into? Uh, yeah, no, it's a good question. I think uh, for me, I think one, you know, I, I think <laughs> coolness is, is relative. And I think that, you know, when you're, we're going to, noodle bars can be 15 years old in August. And I think at a certain point, it's like you have to grow up a little bit and that being cool is not the top priority. Um, and I think that speaks to what we just talked about with having backs on chairs and, and, you know, being hospitable and all these things. Um, and I think for us, it's still maintaining that level of originality in all these spaces. So, uh, for example, um, for these noodle bars, you know, uh, 
Time Warner Center has these vertical spits, which are very much a reaction to uh, its environment um, and has a unique offering. Like with the chicken ramen at Time Warner Center, it comes off of this vertical spit. So it's something that you could not offer downtown. And in LA, we're going to have a unique cooking element as well that's tethered to our relationship with LA. Um, and I think by bringing the dough production in-house and having that visible creation of these products there, it's like how do you grow but make sure that you're not it's not cookie cutter it's not inhuman like you have to keep that element um and so and i don't have we don't have all the answers like you know is that good enough is that enough we'll find out and as i said if it's not there when we open it will be there here <laughs> um but it's just continuously figuring out how can you offer something and i think you know major domo is such a good example of entering, you know, LA in a way that felt respectful to LA and felt intentional. And I think we all, you know, were like nervous to do it, right? Because you didn't want to kind of mail it in or offer, you know, the same, if we offered pork buns and ramen, uh, like we did at 171 as our first restaurant in LA, I don't know if it'd work. 171 being, uh, noodle bar. Yeah. Which maybe not everybody. (laughs) Um, so I'm curious about the innovation. It, it sounds decentralized, but I also know that Dave, like when I was in LA and Major Jomo, there he was in the kitchen working with the chef. So do the two of you independently go around? Do you weigh in on food innovation? Because I know I've just, you know, stalking you. Yeah. Um, you've, been, <laughs> you've been in Australia. You've been in LA. You're the, you've been at each of the restaurants. Uh, do you weigh in on food? hospitality totally vision yeah i mean i think the reason dave and i work well together is i think we have our respective strengths like you know at the end of the day i'm going to always defer to dave on everything uh related to culinary but i think there's two points i think one is you know i think food at this point it's silly to think that it's just the way that it tastes for example like how you're serving it what are you calling it on the menu uh those are all things that dave and i talk about all the time um in making sure that uh you know I think plate, you know, whether it's, uh, so I work on the menus, the plateware, um, all the things around it, um, and helping, I would say more so than the actual dishes, just constructing with Dave and whatever the local team is, what is the kind of, uh, we always talk about the idea of a sandbox and it's like, what does this restaurant operate within? Um, so, you know, what are the rules around the sections? What are the rules around, um, creativity? Cause I think, you know, and I think, perfect example of that is uh, when we opened in Sydney, um, we opened this restaurant called Seobo and it's a tasting menu restaurant um, in a casino in Sydney. And it's twice one best restaurant in Australia with two different chefs, which is like insane. Um, And so when they were doing the menu, there's this whiteboard that I have a photo of that, you know, is, and there's a lot of whiteboarding happening at all times at Mofugu. Uh, And it basically is just a list of what are we not going to do? We're not going to use any seafood that's not from Australia. We're not going to, you know, plate things with swooshes, which at the time was like the hot, you know, uh, way of doing it. We were going to use as much as possible indigenous ingredients like wattle seed, which were not perceived as being very cool uh, at the time. Um, And, you know, really focused in on how can you make this the best restaurant? And the way that you can do that is almost by like limiting yourselves. I think Momo had years and years where we didn't have to put the limitations on ourselves. Like money did that, time did that, uh, you know, the amount of AC did that. Um, And we opened in Australia in this like beautiful space with this gorgeous kitchen. And it was almost like the only way that we could keep what made 
co-good was to then limit ourselves and, and put these restrictions on. So whenever we're opening a new restaurant, we're always kind of talking about, and it's very internal. It's not, not for guests, but just kind of for us to continue to be creative, you almost have to carve out what you can and cannot do. Like, you know, the thing where it's like, try making something with like the six pack of crayons as opposed to like the 64, you're probably going to get something better. Um, so I work with the restaurants on that kind of stuff um, just so that we're all kind of working off the same uh, template, which is what allows, I think, to have this kind of diversified or decentralized creativity. Um, and so that's something that Dave is incredible at is working with um, different chefs uh, and, you know, figuring out because each of them have their own perspective. And, I, you know, I think Momofuku restaurants at this point are really like it's, you know, kind of Momofuku meets uh, this chef's personal experience or background, and that's what the product is. So uh, Joe at Akawi is a perfect example, or Paula in Toronto um, is really like, you know, it's not Dave's food. It's kind of their food through the lens and kind of restrictions placed by <laughs> Momofuku. Um, and so I think that allows for each restaurant to kind of have its own pulse and its own hub of creativity. And I think what's also cool um, is that it also is very... Um, you know, non-denominational. So like uh, Bing, which started uh, at Major Domo, which is kind of a, uh, Bing is uh, bread in Chinese and it's kind I of this flat bread. This. It's so Those good. Bings it's insane. So good. Yeah. And then the, um, the add-ons, I mean, there's a caviar and a hosan and it's phenomenal. So, yeah. They're so, so good. So that started out. Definitely run, don't walk food. Yeah. R&D for Domo. And then, you know, Dave, as he was talking to the different chefs, you know, kind of shared the technique. And then that basically turned up in Toronto as something made with like a local cornmeal. So it almost has more of like, a, it's so good, uh, you know, a very different kind of like Johnny Cake-esque uh, flavor to it. And then uh, you have, uh, that's actually was the, the original inspiration for the bread that we do at Bong Bar, which is the to-go counter next to Time Warner Center where it's thinned out. And, um, and so each chef kind of can take it and then do something with the idea. Um, so it's almost kind of like, you know, it's a, a concept and then each person is responsible for like what makes sense in their restaurant. Does this make any sense at all? And if it does, then what do I need to do to make it make sense here? Um, so it's kind of this like, and we have all these internal systems, like ideas at emails where basically uh, it goes to everyone in the company and it, it's like if you put a new dish on the menu and it has uh, logs of failure, um, potential criticisms and kind of allows there to be a dialogue. And that dialogue is not top down from Dave, it's one chef to another. Um, so that's kind of helped, I would say, uh, keep all these you know it's almost like spinning multiple plates where it's like if there was one person doing it you'd never have the level of uh, uh innovation or creativity at the local restaurant level but by everyone kind of working uh independently and together you can have that going without there being one person responsible for it which i think is the difference between uh how we operate and, and maybe some other restaurant groups i work a lot with dig in and we try to resolve that notion of creativity um, in each of the restaurants because at each dig-in, even though like it's planches and it's vegetables and in many cases it's uh, bowls of food, we respond to the um, to the farms, right? If someone has like extra shishito peppers, you know, one of the restaurants will take them and they can make whatever cool. they want. But it's always it's like listening to you talk about that is such an interesting solution to how do you share the knowledge. Like if someone does an amazing dish, 
um, you know, downtown? How does uptown learn about that and learn from it? And how is it not lost? Yeah, know? yeah. And how is it captured? Totally. And that's like, you know, I, I think we are lucky in that we had some systems that were set up forever ago that as we've expanded have only gotten uh, more useful. But I think also as we grow as a company and, you know, open more disparate locations, it's almost you need to double down on those systems. And, you know, we have an internal uh, like portal that, you know, we have daily logs of service and all these different pieces that just trying to make sure that, uh, as you said, nothing gets lost and that there's just continuous communication um, while empowering the restaurants to kind of resolve things themselves. Um, and it's always this kind of push-pull um, that, you know, uh, and I think it's the same thing with everything where it's an ebb and a flow, right? Where you have, go through periods where certain restaurants are kind of, uh, they're, they're grooving, they're going, and then, you know, you'll, st- you know, whether they're launching a new meal period or uh, they have a new large format and then, you know, uh, the, the uh, like home base office team will come in, advise, help, help build that out. Um, so it's kind of like at any given point, you kind of have everyone in a different place. <laughs> uh, the, um, the large, uh, we're going to take a break and but I like I don't want to stop the conversation. The large format um, in the various restaurants I think is fascinating. I mean, Dave obviously pioneered a version of it at Sambar with the Bosom, which again is now copied. I mean, he copied it, but yeah. it's copied. yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> worth like, noting. Okay, yeah, exactly. <laughs> to be fair, he didn't invent it, but um, but the large format and my experience of large format. You can tell I go to a lot of Momo restaurants um, is impressive in their difference, but also their um, festiveness and mm-hmm. the way that they intersect, uh, you know, with this moment in time, which sharing and celebrating um, at the table is so valuable. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about the intersection of Momo and um trends like food waste but also we're going to find out a little bit about marguerite's past which you're really going to want to hear about because in fact we haven't talked about it yet but marguerite is food royalty stay with us this episode is brought to you by visit ithaca Located in New York's Finger Lakes region, Ithaca boasts an authentic craft beverage experience, tasty farm-to-table culinary adventures, and scenic outdoor recreation. As the saying goes, Ithaca is gorgeous. The city is home to 150 waterfalls and gorges sprinkled through its downtown and sloping hillsides. State parks and acres of natural lands offer outdoor recreation for every level of enthusiast. Come stroll among the cool ravines, scenic hiking trails, and natural vistas. Ithaca is home to Ivy Lee Cornell University and Ithaca College, resulting in an influx of new cultures, new tastes, and new energy every year. There's so much to explore, from art galleries and museums to unique attractions like the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Ithaca sits at the heart of a blossoming heritage and craft cider industry, Some of these delicious ciders can be bought in market, but many of the most unique varieties can only be experienced with a visit to Ithaca and this great cider region. Go to visitithaca.com to get inspired and plan your trip today. Welcome back. This is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly. My guest today is Marguerite Mariscal, the CEO of Mamafuku. Hey, Marguerite. We've been talking about all these 
amazing um, the development of dishes at Momo. And during the break, you were saying how in Vegas, where people don't uh, plan so far ahead, some of the dishes that we know and love that are large format and have to be ordered ahead, like you do it differently there. Yeah, yeah. I think just uh, like as we go into new markets uh, and just making sure that we're like planning not just the food, but also like how we're serving it, uh, what we're calling things, et cetera, to be responsive to the environment. But part of it was that your role is to say, why? Yeah. <laughs> and, and I like sometimes it's like things like, um, I mean, the example that I always give is the backs on chairs where, um, you know, whenever we'd open a new restaurant, everyone would just order the same chair as if it's like, you know, default to us. And it's like, you know, that was purchased because we had to, right? Like no one actively chose plywood at, you know, uh, the original noodle bar at 163. It's just, that's what made sense. Um, and so just making sure that we're like actively making decisions. And, you know, I think another one is, uh, which is like, you know, uncool potentially is, uh, you know, we used to never participate in things like restaurant week or all these different initiatives. And the idea was kind of like, you know, we're, we're above that, you know? And I think the, like as we've grown it's like someone who's able to say you know well why don't we do it like is there a real reason is it just annoying do people like it um you know i think just not treating anything as if it's like you know written in pen in the momo book and that everything is constantly being uh considered and reevaluated based on like the current circumstances of, of where we are so um i want to talk about your past you went to um Momo, uh, in 2011 as an intern, uh, but it wasn't your first experience with food. The, it, it seems, and I think there may indeed have been all kinds of jobs like babysitting and other things along the way, but you worked for your uncle, um, in Amagansett at a, at a farm stand. That was one job, but you're, you come from, um, a line of Zabars, right? Your great grandfather, Louis Zabar founded, uh, the Upper West Side Emporium, which is very close to my house, I must say. And I was there yesterday and got um, herring and cream um, and prosciutto and melon. But, um, and no smoked salmon, for which Zabar's is justly famous. But your great-grandfather and then um, your mother's father was Stanley, one of the three who really founded and created this emporium that succeeded uh, because of innovation, because of marketing, um, because of, they just completely changed the way that people thought about, like, what's a Jewish deli? And it started small, and then they took over practically an entire block. And I don't want to assume that it's in your blood, but somewhere <laughs> there is, like, some, some genetic matter that has been in the food business for a long time. What do you take away from your family history that you feel like you bring to Momo? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, so I, I worked as a cashier, uh, at Zabar's for some summers. And as I, as you said, I worked uh, for my uncle, uh, at, at the farmer's market he was running. Um, I mean, I think definitely like working hard is something that, you know, when you're working for your family, it's hard to, to not. Uh, and I think that that was instilled in me. And then I also think, I, I talked to Dave a lot about the fact Dave also comes from a family business, not, uh, I mean, some in food and, and some out. And I think that there's kind of a way that you operate when you have a family business and that you have to make really long-term decisions because it's at the end of the day, um, you know, a reflection on, on you and, and, uh, your values really. So that's how I perceive it. Um, so, you know, the way that I look at Momofuku is very similar in that it's, you know, uh, 
in it for the long haul and and kind of taking care of people that have been employees. I mean, Save Ours is, has employees that have worked there for 30, you know, plus years, uh, and we're just like a baby comparative. I think they just, Save Ours is 80 plus right now. Um, so kind of seeing that and seeing how it evolved, and I think you're, you're very right in that, uh, like e-commerce, for example, like totally changed the game for Save Ours. Um, you know, it used to be everyone's like, oh, I miss it. And now all of a sudden it can be delivered to your door in two days. So, um, and I think that they've always kind of been at the forefront of that and just, you know, uh, uh, growing, but at the same time, not growing in a way, you know, they've had offers obviously to like license things and open in Japan and do all these different things that they've always said no to just because at the end of the day, it's their name, it's their product. And that's the most important thing. Um, so I'm sure there's like a value set that I inherited from growing up in that. Um, and just like, you know, Dave and I always talk about it, it's just that like every single thing is, uh, there's no like off switch. <laughs> it's just like constant inundation of talking about uh, business and uh, all of the things interconnected. And I'm sure that has negatively <laughs> impacted me and that I feel the same way now about both Momo and obviously to some degree Zabars as well. So now your, your grandfather was on the finance side, um, but his brother Saul, I think famous was a famous taster, like yeah, a cupping and coffee and going to uh, acne and you know, checking the fish and all of that. Yeah, my grandfather uh, was a lawyer and then uh, started working at Zabar's. Um, so he has been more, I guess, involved in like the e-commerce and, uh, you know, systems and that. And um, and Eli is like incredible and, you know, does everything you could possibly imagine. Um, so, but did you, um, was tasting a big part of family history? Uh, I mean, I think in your eating. Family. <laughs> <laughs> more so than tasting, I think. Um, you know, we just have, uh, you know, I see everyone very often. Everyone lives within like 10 blocks on the Upper West Side. Um, so there's a lot of that. And, you know, I, I think just kind of, it was only when I went to college that I realized that my upbringing was not normal and that we would like, you know, uh, we'd go to Flushing on the way. My parents have a house in East, in, uh, East Hampton and we would always stop on the way out or uh, my dad's an architect and so he's projects around uh, New York. So he would, you know, be at a project in Sunset Park and scope out a place that we would then go on the weekend. So everything pretty much revolves around food to some degree. Um, uh, so I think, you know, I got to college and realized that not everyone spent all of their time thinking about and eating. So, um, but it's also it. true that you're, you're, well, obviously you just said your dad's an architect and your mother is in the arts. So she elected to not be in the family business and you're not in the family business, but you're in the business of the family. Um, did it ever occur to you to not go in that direction? Uh, it's funny. It's, it's, yeah, I mean, I really did not think that I wanted to be, uh, involved in food when I was going through school I did I did more so like internships at like NPR and uh, the Sundance channel and that kind of stuff and more I guess like brand centric stuff and um, uh, it's funny my, like in with any family business you know I think my mom always talks about when she was growing up that you know everyone was like don't go into retail it's a horrible business you know like my grandfather was like you have to work Christmas and you work you know Hanukkah and just don't do it and then I think uh, you know uh, most of my cousins have kind of ended up, whether it's like going to Cornell Hospitality School or uh, working for their family or, you know, everyone kind of, I think, has ultimately gotten sucked back in. <laughs> but uh, it was definitely not something that I, I ever approached. Um, you know, I think the fact that I didn't go to hospitality school, I really, it, I think what's interesting is that momofuku, I think, is the thing that got me less so restaurants or, or food. Right. So like 
it's not that you went just to any restaurant group. I mean, you went to a yeah. very particular place. Um, I read this beautiful quote about how your family like changed the world and um I mean in a particular way and it reminded me of um Dave and Momo a lot which is that um they looked at ghettoized Jewish and Italian foods and realized that they could appeal to everyone along with the European imports and that notion of um you know taking something that is discarded or not respected as much and then um you know repackaging it and showing its value and value is a huge proposition, a huge Zabar's proposition. I mean, they love underselling. Um, <laughs> I wonder, how do, you, how do you bring that underselling um, attitude to Momo? Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think, you know, Dave and I always talk about how food is the gateway in a lot of ways to education and to uh, even just mutual understanding amongst people. Um, and it's something that we talk about all the time, um, you know, especially with just opening Kawi and doing kimbap, which people I think have historically equated with being a cheap snack. And, and just describe what that is. Yeah, sorry. It's, um, so it's basically uh, ingredients, usually typically cooked ingredients wrapped in uh, rice and then seaweed. So similar to like a maki roll in uh, Japan, but distinctive in that uh, how the rice is seasoned is different um, and the seaweed used is different. So they're not at all the same things. Um, and, you know, I think that it's it's interesting almost in that like some of the the critique we get are from people that are actually really familiar with kimbap, not so much a population that's unfamiliar because they have a notion in their head of what the cost should be. Um, and so I think that's something that, you know, we're very conscious of and making sure that we're, we're addressing. And, you know, I think that's true for everything we do is kind of how do you present something in a way? And that goes back to what I was talking about with what are you calling it? How is it being packaged? You know, uh, one of the uh, kimbaps that Joe serves uh, is wrapped in this like kind of beautiful leaf. And it's kind of how do you kind of change the perception of how people see something? And a lot of times it's more than just the taste. It's everything around it. Um, but yeah, no, I think I think uh, that's very. I, I will share that with my grandfather. Uh, <laughs> it's a nice quote. Um, but uh, do I, you do you um, feel that it was that family background that allowed you as an intern? Because you mentioned it a little bit at the beginning of the show. Like you know, you ended up a little ballsier than most because like you have been at the table with these people who are discussing. I'm not saying arguing, but like, <laughs> we're all you know. Yeah, it's probably probably more more arguing than not. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think I would never consciously. I never consciously thought that. I think it's that. I think it's also uh, just, you know, I, like I think the gift that my uh, uh, schooling gave me is just like I think at, at Dalton they just instilled in you to like always have an opinion. And, Dalton you know, was high school. Yeah, like less, less so that it mattered if it was right. Uh, and so, <laughs> you know, I think that I have just always felt, or maybe it's, I don't know, maybe this is wrong, but I understood what the end goal was. So if something was not driving with what that was, I felt that I was in the right to call it out because I so you feel like it's more, it's more personal. It's not actually that you like probably ate <laughs> yeah, caviar for lunch because you <laughs> had the highest bo caviar volume sales in New York City. Um, okay, so I, we're still running out of time. I'm going to rush you here. Um, you need to teach me something. Oh, yeah. Um, so what are you going to teach me? Uh, so uh, I was going to teach you, uh, inspired by Priya and some other people, how to clean uh, white sneakers. Oh, wow. And Which is a, it's a multi-step process. Okay, I need to know. And you're wearing white sneakers, I'm wearing and I'm sneakers. wearing blue sneakers. So I don't know if it works for blue ones, but let's see what happens with white. I think it works for all sneakers. I think just the, the intensity and, uh, you know, attention on a white sneaker is, is more. But uh, so it's a three-step process. So it's um, 
uh, you start by just like wiping off the normal dirt that just, you know, with a paper towel wetted. Then you have to get a Mr. Clean uh, magic eraser, which is the greatest thing that's ever been invented. Uh, I had a professor at Bowdoin who said the only two products that have ever been better than advertised is the iPhone and Mr. <laughs> Clean magic eraser. And wow. it is beyond true. Uh, so that you use on the like the the base um, because it's not leather. So you can like really get in there. And then uh, the third step is ivory soap. I don't know why it's ivory soap, but that's what uh, brand loyal. Uh, and you'd use that with a uh, washcloth or like a t-shirt. And that's what you use on the leather. So it's like a very, oh, this it's, is it's leather only. Yeah. Well, that's the hardest. And you can't use the Mr. Clean on the leather because like the micro, you know, abrasion uh, stuff. So, you know, just got to. Okay, so in my case, I'd have to go buy a pair of sneakers to make them dirty. I think you, but need, I think you need white sneakers. I think I, that's part of... <laughs> well, that's part of what? I, I don't know. It could be my new brand identity exactly. given to me by one of the brand experts of America. <laughs> Thank you very much, Marguerite. Okay, and um, last question of the show. Pay it forward to some woman in hospitality, someone who you admire who doesn't really get the recognition that she deserves. So there's... I have three people, if that's okay. Um, we're running out of time. Uh, so when I started at Momo, I think what's really interesting is, is as I've done more of these interviews, we have a staff right now that, um, you know, are a lot of our department heads and, and, uh, you know, Joe at, at Hudson Yards, um, are women. And I think that like people are giving unjustly giving me credit for that. And I think when I started at Momo, all the department heads were women. Um, and so the executive team was this group of like incredible people. Um, and I'm sure that had some bearing on my ability to think that this was possible. Um, and so those three people were uh, E.J. Song, who uh, moved back to Seattle, but has uh, subsequently worked as the director of operations at a bunch of places. She worked at Whole Foods. Uh, she just worked at WeWork. Um, is moving back to Seattle, uh, Sue Chan, who uh, now has her own uh, agency, Care of Chan, um, who did branding and PR and marketing, and then Alex Pamoulier, who uh, moved also to Seattle uh, and is currently the head of finance for uh, Sea Creatures, which is that, uh, you know, uh, Walrus, uh, uh, Walrus and the Carpenter, Whale Winds, and all of those properties. So the Renee Erickson uh, restaurants yeah. in Seattle. Fantastic. Um, so anyway, but I just, you know, I think that that, probably very unconsciously had some effect on me um, uh, for my time at MoMA. Right. So those women actually ran the entire MoMA empire at the time. It's changed over time. Yeah. And you've riven, risen from intern to CEO. Well, that's what we have time for. Thank you so much for coming on Speaking Broadly. Um, if people want to find you, where do they find you? Oh, my God. Uh, I don't know. Um, Instagram. On Instagram. Yeah. Um, I don't know, mostly just Momofuku all the time. <laughs> Probably somewhere at some Momofuku restaurant if you want to find at it. Momo Long Play, um, at Momo Long Play on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And um, you know where to find me, at Speaking Broadly. Uh, if you listened and loved this show, please go uh, to Apple Podcasts, rate, review, come back, send me emails. Actually, I want to start a letter-writing campaign because, yes, the last time I came to... Heritage, there was a letter waiting for me, and it was my happiest moment because I love mail. And um, so, big shout out to my one letter writer, <laughs> and thanks to Matt Patterson, engineer, 
um, par excellence. And Nina, welcome back. I missed you in Israel, and I'm so glad you're here co-producing with me today. Um, that's it for today. Enjoy your week, and we'll be back at it next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.